Now at this time, I think the kindergartners and first graders are dismissed. And as they're doing that, I want to apologize on two counts. Uh, First, if you hear me sniffling and coughing, I think the 40 degree change in temperature every other day, it seems like, has caught up with me. And then secondly, I want to apologize because I didn't intend to um, maybe have my sermon title so close to my name. Um, If you'll read it there. I wasn't intending that I was going to be the one giving the lesson today, and hopefully you'll uh, feel that was the case when we get through uh, with our message today. But uh, nonetheless, our title today is Lessons from a Madman. Louis XIV reigned as king of France for 72 years. He ascended to the throne at age four. He holds the longest reign in European history as a king. With wars and accomplishments and buildings and all kinds of achievements under his belt, he became consumed with his own power and he often called himself the Great Monarch. Others called him the Sun King and it is even reported that he had the audacity to say, I am the state. In other words, I am the nation. Everything that is France is because of me. Well, for such an uncommon king and such a great man, something very common happened to him. He died. At the age of 76, after 72 years of reign, this king, like all others before him, died. Being the pompous man that he was, however, in his will he left great detail about what his funeral should be like. Wanting it to be just as grand as his reign, he left thousands of details on how it should take place. Well, the day came for his funeral and thousands attended this elaborate festival. It even spilled outside the cathedral where it was held. His body lay in a brilliant golden casket at the front of the church. And one lone candle lit the cathedral just above his body. Everything was going as planned, according to the deceased king, until the bishop, who was set to give the eulogy, climbed the pulpit. Bishop Malasson climbed the pulpit to present the eulogy to this vast crowd, and you can imagine there was great anticipation, right? How would someone eulogize such a great man? 72 years reigning as king. The bishop leaned forward in front of all the noblemen and the military men, the giants of the day, the thousands who were just there to look on. Leaned forward over the pulpit. He reached down and he snuffed out the candle. And in the complete darkness... He said, only God is great. And he walked down off the pulpit and left the church. Only God is great. What a fantastic phrase. Maybe that should be at the end of all our funerals, right? Maybe we shouldn't eulogize ourselves or we shouldn't have people speak about us. We should just say, God is great. Only God is great. Well, the word great, we live in a world where superlatives are like great and wonderful and fantastic. 
are used about what? Snowboarders in the Olympics, right? They talk up and they give great superlatives about these wonderful tricks and these great twists. And it was gnarly. It was awesome, right? We have awesome cars and we have amazing new dresses that we just bought. And we went to a fantastic dinner. Already limited, as you spoke of just a minute ago, in our finite language. We're already limited in the way that we can ascribe power or glory and greatness to God. Yet we lease out the most amazing superlatives to things that are so mundane. An awesome hot dog. I fear I've said that. I really think I may have said that. It certainly sounds like something that would come from me. And let me give you this. I know much about hot dogs. I've eaten many and I love hot dogs. I've had tasty hot dogs. But can a hot dog truly be awe-inspiring? I have a friend in California, a pastor there. And we joke with him all the time because he has this phrase, whenever he eats something that is tasty or whether he buys something new that he really enjoys, he says, you need to do this. You know, you need to try these biscuits. What does he say? It will change your life. I love him to death. He's great. Um, And certainly there's jest in the way that he says that because we speak so hyperbolically. We speak with such great exaggeration in our society that when we come to speak of God, whom we cannot overappreciate, whom we cannot overestimate, whom we cannot exaggerate his greatness, we are left to describe him with the same terms we describe our new pair of shoes. Well, I'm not here today, and I don't think Scripture is calling us necessarily to change our vocabulary. But I want to change my heart and my perspective on God. Do we really understand the greatness of God? I suspect we don't. In fact, I know in my own heart I often contaminate my worship by thinking of God as less than He is. Maybe it's in my prayer where I don't fully trust in Him and I fully don't depend on Him to be in absolute control. Maybe it's in my life and I do things where I demonstrate that I'm not trusting in His greatness. Well, I think we could all use a reminder of the greatness of God. And today we're going to take sort of a refresher course from a most unexpected tutor. A lesson, if you will, from a madman. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to have to parachute in, as is the case when you have a one-time shot at preaching. Um, It's difficult because we don't have the entire setting and, and scenery. We haven't been flowing through the book of Daniel. So let me give you briefly what is taking place. And some of you may be far more familiar with this, um, and this can be a refresher to you as well. In the years around 600 B.C., if you'll recall, Israel and Judah, who had been divided because of Solomon's sins, were taken at different times into exile by the Babylonians. In 586 was the final sort of deportation uh, to Babylon, and the Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. It's during this time of captivity in which we find the book of Daniel. And if you read the book of Daniel in its entirety, there would be one theme that would stand up out above all else. 
and that is God is sovereign. No matter what is happening in the world around you that may appear as if God is not sovereign. Certainly from a Jew's perspective, if their country was taken into captivity, you may question, is our God in control? Well, Daniel is here, the entire book is here to demonstrate that God is sovereign over all. Daniel chapter 1 begins as Daniel and his cohorts demonstrate integrity and they stand for what they believe to be true and in God's providence they are promoted. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's called in to interpret a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He not only interprets the dream, but he actually tells him what he dreamt. Daniel chapter 3 is the most famous passage. right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the what? Fiery furnace. You've all had Sunday school classes on that, seen it up on the flannel graph. and You're familiar with that. What is on the heels of this in this text that we find Daniel chapter 4. And if you actually look at the first three verses of Daniel chapter 4, I think it's most appropriately connected with Daniel chapter 3. The old Hebrew text included it with the third chapter. And it's really Nebuchadnezzar giving praise because he just saw what happened and these three men were saved from fire and the men that he had them thrown in with were consumed. So an obvious, astounding miracle. Nebuchadnezzar, rightfully so, Gives praise to God. But we're not really sure it was heartfelt because we come into chapter 4 and we find ourselves at verse 4 where we're going to pick up. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I just want to stop and tell you that the word flourishing, and I'm not going to do this with every word in chapter 4. We won't get out of here today. But the word for flourishing meant growing green. And that's important because you're getting ready to find out that he has a dream regarding a tree that flourished. And so Nebuchadnezzar uses this word in Hebrew to say, I was flourishing. I was growing green. I was content. This is following the heels of all his conquering. He had even defeated the Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar, in our vernacular, was propped up, feet up, watching the TV. Not a worry in the world. Then he pillowed his head at night and he had a dream. Look at verse 5. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me. And I want to stop right there. Uh, You may be thinking, if you've just sort of read through Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, that Daniel interpreted the dream. Why on earth would Nebuchadnezzar wait till the end to bring in Daniel? Right? That would make sense. If nobody else could do it and he did it, why not bring him in first, save yourself all the trouble? And there's a whole, there's a plethora of reasons that people give. But I think the most tenable, the most reasonable was... He didn't want to hear what Daniel had to say. We're getting ready to read the dream in just a minute, and you'll find out that you could probably have interpreted this dream for the king. It was so clear. But the king did not want to hear what he thought Daniel would say. Flip over with me really quickly, 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22. To show you that this is not an anomaly in Scripture, um, and that this may very well be the case, 1 Kings, you can keep your thumb in Daniel chapter 4. 1 Kings 22, 8. Ahab 
is king of Israel and Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. And they kind of meet together and they say, shouldn't we go up and battle at Ramoth Gilead? And they're really discussing, could we win? Right? Could we win if we team together? And Jehoshaphat had a bright idea and he said in verse um, 5, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. In other words, have you prayed about it? Do you really think we have a chance? And look at his response. Um, the king gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and he says, Shall I go up? And they all said, Oh, go for it, go for it. But Jehoshaphat wasn't feeling right about it. And he said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And look at verse 8. This is great. The king of Israel said, this is Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, There is one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Why? Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He doesn't want to hear um, from Micaiah, because Micaiah always gives him bad prophecy. Well, good old Ahab doesn't listen to Micaiah's prophecy again, goes up, dies, and the sort of the end of the story. But, nevertheless, it was made sense that Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to call Daniel in right away, because Daniel was going to tell him what was really going to happen. So look back in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8 of Daniel. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar. Remember, that's his Babylonian name that he was given. According to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. This is not a compliment. Remember, you don't want to group Yahweh with a group of holy gods. This is not as if it was a compliment. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now, let me uh, say, we're going to move through verse, this passage quickly, verse 10 through 18. Well, let, let's just read it. Verse 10 through 18, let's read the dream. Now, these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and, it was, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. All living creatures fed themselves from it. From it. I was looking in the vision in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a, brand, a band of iron and bronze around it. In the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heavens. And let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods, or uh, seven years, of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know, catch this, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation uh, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make it known to me. I want to put a pause in there. I think it's just none of the wise men wanted to tell him what it meant because... Could you not have told him what was getting ready to happen? He's the most powerful man in the world. Uh, anyway, pretty clear. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, 
Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar in verse 19, was appalled for a while. And you can imagine why. Right? He's getting ready to tell the king he's going to become a madman for seven years. What kind of response would you think would take place? Hmm? Have you seen Nebuchadnezzar's history in the past? What did Nebuchadnezzar do to people who didn't honor him in chapter 3? They threw them, threw them into a what? Fiery furnace. And then at the end of chapter 3, when he recognizes that Yahweh is a good God to worship for the time being, he says, anyone who doesn't believe in Yahweh, let's tear off their arms and legs and let's turn their houses into rubbish. So he's a pretty drastic king, right? These rulers tended to be. So Daniel knows this, yet, and this is really a side note to the message, but Daniel was faithful to do what was right regardless of the consequences. Think about that. He was faithful to respond and to speak truth no matter what the results. He certainly knew very well Nebuchadnezzar's tendencies. He knew what he could do, but Daniel was faithful. Look at verse 19. And Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled, and you can understand why. For a while his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, certainly seeing this in him, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Daniel was faithful to this man. He realized that in God's sovereignty and God's providence, he had placed him over him. And just like in Romans 13, where we're called to submit ourselves as long as it's within we don't go against scripture we're called to submit ourselves to the authorities God's placed above us Daniel was submissive he didn't want to give this interpretation to the king so it's almost as if you could see Daniel swallow lower his head and say verse 20 the tree you saw which became large and grew strong whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and fruit abundant, and which food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and all the branches of the birds of the sky lodged. Verse 22. It is you. O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. I want to pause right there and give you a brief update about Nebuchadnezzar. Do you realize that he was definitely in the top five most powerful men of all time? Possibly vying for number one. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the known world. Easily the most powerful man that anyone there knew of. Rich beyond measure. Could command anything at the drop of a hat, it would be done. He conquered all the Middle East, he conquered Egypt, he was at peace, no one Wanted to battle him. He was one of the greatest builders of all time. In a few minutes we'll look at actually Babylon, which he helped build. In chapter 3, realizing this power, he even said to the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were getting ready to be thrown in the fire, he said, and what God is there who can save you out of my hand? You can understand from a human perspective how Nebuchadnezzar thought he was great. Daniel even says, you're like this tree. God has raised you up and you are fruitful. You are powerful. He had every reason to think he was the man. Look back at verse 23. 
In that, the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. It goes on to repeat that. This is the interpretation, O king. Look at verse 24. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the fields, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. Encouraging, verse 26, and then, um, and that it was commanded to leave the stump, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. And then verse 27, look at this. Daniel says, therefore, O king, This wasn't in the dream. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy. In case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel had sincerity. And he was pleading for the king to repent. Another side note, this is a great example of what our evangelism should be. We, in a sense, have... Prophetic minds in that we know through scripture the result or the end of one who doesn't trust in God. Do we not? We know with confidence that their end is bleak. But we're called to command them, to plead with them to repent. Out of a sincere heart that we care for them, we should be genuinely concerned with those to whom we witness. Beg with them, plead with them to turn from their ways. Well, notice the mercy of God. That not only did he send a dream and then he sent Daniel to tell him and even this verse Daniel to call him to repentance. But then look at verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. That's somewhat of a funny statement. Of course it happened. God said it was going to. Verse 29. But 12 months later, a year passes by, continued amount of time where God was long-suffering. Certainly he ran into Daniel. Daniel was one of the highest men in the kingdom under him. Can you imagine walking through the halls of the palace? And every time he sees Daniel, he's reminded of Daniel's message. Perhaps Daniel even repeated his message to him, pleading with him. But Romans 1 teaches us that those who do not know God suppress the truth in unrighteousness, right? The king didn't want to hear it. He did not want to accept that he was not sovereign. So, verse 29, here he is. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And remember, in ancient days, the rooftops were flat. People spent a lot of time on there. It would be sort of like a patio. So it makes sense. He was in the palace, the highest part of the town. He would walk around on his rooftop, and he would see the city. And then he says this. One of the most unbelievable remarks. Verse 30, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And I need to stop right there and tell you briefly what he was seeing. Before you jump down this man's throat, I want you to understand what he saw. He saw Babylon, maybe the most magnificent city ever. It was 200 square miles. Compare that to Wilmington, which is 41 square miles. It was enormous. It had two great walls around it, protecting it. The walls were so thick themselves that two chariots could ride side by side on top. It looked impenetrable. It had a street that was two-thirds of a mile long that was 70 feet wide. It went right down the middle. 
And all along the street were glazed bricks with an ornate descriptions and pictures on it. It was fantastic. The Ishtar Gate was the most fabulous gate there. It was 35 feet high. And it had 357 hand-painted bricks all along it. It was gorgeous. The Tower of Babylon was seven stories high. On top it had a temple to one of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar's palace was enormous. Richly decorated. And then, Nebuchadnezzar, marrying a woman from the Median Mountains, wanted to bring the mountains to his wife, and so he built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These could be seen from outside the city as how high they were. The water, getting the water to them was an engineering I don't know what you would call it, phenomenon. They didn't know how to do that, and he somehow orchestrated this. He was a fantastic builder. He had built, from a human standpoint, the most majestic city in the world. So here he stands on his rooftop, and he says, Look at Babylon, which I have built. Now look back at the text. It's interesting the wording that the Holy Spirit always uses. While the word was still in the king's mouth. The irony there, right? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Now keep in mind, he had earthly sovereignty. He was the greatest man in the world. And that is getting ready to be removed from him for a period of seven years. But there's also this irony, there's also this second tier to it, almost a reminder Sovereignty has been removed from you in that what you think you are, you are not. True sovereignty you've never had. And we're getting ready to show you. Verse 32 goes on to fulfill and says, And you'll be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts. And verse 33, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Now, I don't know exactly what it looked like. I don't know. If it was really an interesting sight to see immediately, if he became, um, look at the description there. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven and his hair had grown long like eagle's feathers. And he had nails like bird's claws. No greater humiliation is ever recorded in scripture, at least involuntary. Christ's humiliation was obviously the greatest. But here you had the king of the world went to become a beast. The disease is actually known as lycanthropy or boanthropy. Lycanthropy means like werewolf. That's where we get this idea. And people were, that lost their minds often began to appear like and act like wolves. He thought he was an ox, started to act like an ox. Whatever. But anyway, Nebuchadnezzar lost everything in an instant that he thought he had, that he thought he had built. His buildings, his power, his prestige, his fame was all gone in an instant. From a monarch to a madman, while the words were still in his mouth. Everything was stripped from him. And I was thinking about it this week. Job, too, had everything stripped from him. But he had a slightly different perspective. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He understood that everything that he had prospered was given out of the open hand of the Lord. Back to the text. What happens next? And this is the key, and this is really where we're going to summarize, and we're going to get our two lessons. Two lessons, really, to keep you spiritually sane. Look back at the text. 
Verse 34, after that time, the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. The Lord opened his eyes. And I blessed the Most High and praised him and honored him for he lives forever. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures for generation to generation. The first lesson, and these are really simple. Hopefully you can remember them. The first lesson, if you want to stay spiritually sane, is to know God is great alone. God alone is great. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar came to realize. Look at verse 34. Your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your kingdom endures from generation to generation. Certainly he knew that he would not endure from generation to generation. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to the will of the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can stop God. Right? He is great and he is great alone. Psalm 86.10 says, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. We read Isaiah 44.6-8. Verse 8, it ends, Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced to you, Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. The first thing, the first lesson you must learn from this madman is that God is great. And number two, it's just the flip side of the coin. You're not God. God is great and I'm not God. You say, well, that's obvious. No, not really. We oftentimes, now maybe we don't say that we're God. We're too pious for that or we're too knowledgeable for that but how many times do we elevate ourselves in small ways to that of being sovereign whenever you neglect to pray whenever praying doesn't matter you are in a little way moving yourself higher and higher in your own mind as sovereign not dependent upon God look back at verse 17 What was the purpose of this sentence? Let's see if it really took place. Verse 17 of chapter 4. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that. So here's the purpose. That the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar came to realize that he was not God. This pseudo-sovereign had a confrontation with the Creator God. I want to close by turning to Job chapter 38 and 40. Job had a similar encounter with the Creator. We're not going to read, obviously, three chapters of this. I would encourage you to go home at some point this week. Sit down and read this. Job chapter 38. Verse 1, then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you will instruct me. There's sarcasm dripping from the mouth of God. You've probably spoken this way somewhat to your children. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? You can begin to see Job sinking lower and lower in his chair. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who laid its cornerstone? Who enclosed the sea with its doors? I love that picture. Whenever I go to the beach, I like to think about that. The seas will not go any farther than the Lord allows them to go. He has set the doors. When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. Verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? The next two and a half chapters go on to extol in one way after another. Just were you there when I created this beast? And were you there when I built this mountain? And the obvious answer to all of it is what? No. Why? Because we are not God. Job learned this. Nebuchadnezzar learned this. Hopefully we learn this. Only God is great. Now maybe you have in your life little Babylons that are building up. You know, maybe it's your family, your job, things that you're proud of. And there's a little tendency in your heart to say, look at my Babylon which I've built. Maybe you're tempted to light a candle over yourself and draw the attention of everyone around you to just what you've done. And they may be noble things, they may be good things, but what you must always remember is that only God is worthy of praise. Only God is great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do fall so far short in coming with words to proclaim your greatness. We know that you are not like us. You are transcendent beyond us. You are you are God. Eternal, unchangeable. And yet you are also our friend and our Savior. Father, I pray that our understanding of your greatness and your control permeates every aspect of our life. Even now as we come to give, may we know that what we've been given is yours. What we have, what we possess, is yours. May we give back to you out of a grateful heart out of a heart that recognizes that only God is great. It's in your name and for your sake that we pray. Amen.